Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 43. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello! Today we'll be discussing the 21st episode of season 2, Liars, Guns, and Money, part 3, Plan B. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Liars, Guns, and Money Part 3. Picking up where Liars, Guns, and Money Part 2 ended, John is strapped down by Scorpius, ready to have the chip removed. Meanwhile, Aaron has to keep together their not-so-merry band of mercenaries as things go from bad to worse. We have the thrilling conclusion of our three-parter, which is basically an action movie conclusion that features Aaron in charge as the plan changes from rescuing Jothy to rescuing John. And of course, since, as you remember from last episode, the crew's money was creatures that were eating Moya, so they got burned up, burning Moya in the process. And so now they have nothing to pay the mercenaries with, and they are not happy about it. So as our episode starts out, we have this really tense renegotiation of terms that occurs. Yeah, it's really nice to see Aaron in charge because this is essentially John Crichton's Farscape, which we've kind of talked about in the past a little bit. It's really rare for Erin herself to get a chance to shine as the military strategist and leader. And this episode shows her stepping up, being in charge, being the one that essentially has to corral everybody to her viewpoint. Yeah, it's really fun to watch Erin just be completely badass in this situation. So what has happened is John has gone down and traded himself for Jothy. And he's left them a message where he's like, this is at least something I, good I can do with my life since this chip is taking over my control of myself. First of all, there's a little note where Aaron gives Dargo a pointed look and says, see, he wasn't out to get you. He was actually trying to do something good. And Dargo concedes. But then you have the mercenaries who are like, so now you have no money and now you want us to go rescue this guy? And it gets really tense with... A couple of guns in people's faces, and Chiana's in particular. And let's just play this clip of Aaron basically taking charge of the entire situation. Go on, shoot her. You're an embarrassment, Zelkin. Aaron, you're worse. You're worse than an embarrassment. You're an idiot. What are you doing? There are 30,000 containers in the Shadow Depository filled with riches that you could have, but you'd rather point a gun at a girl. What are you trying to do, Aaron? Shame me into going with you. No. No, because even if you wanted to, I wouldn't go into battle with you now. Do you know why? Because you're a coward and an idiot. What do you think you're going to get if you steal Moya? She's a half burned leviathan i mean you two have to be the stupidest pirates i've ever met we are not stupid what's going on me where you are and remain calm and what you can hear there is if this was a john situation i think john would have immediately put in his like crazy john but what actually ends up happening is Aaron just kind of starts laughing and she's like, we're going to be super rich at the end of this. If you don't want a cut of that, well, you're lost. I don't want you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just love it. I mean, she just doesn't let them face her at all. She is completely cool about it. She's like, go ahead and shoot Chiana. What's he going to prove it by killing a girl? You know, prove your strength by just hurting someone like that. And I don't know. There's just it's just really beautiful to watch. Mm -hmm. And it kind of shows you the sort of leader that she is, because she's really cool headed about this. And even though you as viewers, we can tell she is desperate to rescue John. There is this underlying military part of her that really does give her the ability to strategize on the fly and not John Crichton sort of strategizing, which is kind of more mental or Dargo strategizing, which is let's just blow a hole in it. I love Dargo's strategy. Oh my gosh, I love Dargo. But you know, Aaron's really does feel very military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's not going to show weakness in the face of someone else pointing a gun at her. She's going to try and undermine them with words first and try and talk mm-hmm. them around. And it kind of works. And actually, it's funny that you bring up John's strategy of doing Crazy John Act because it's actually Stark who comes in. Stark and Jothy come in late and they reshift the balance of the numbers of how many 
Moya crew there are versus the number of mercenaries. And it's Stark's crazy act. He does a my side, your side that actually gets Rolf's attention. Rolf is the blood tracker and eventually convinces him that, oh, he's, he's this crazy warrior type. I mean, Stark of all people, right? That if he fights like that down on there, then Rolf will be on their side. So that's actually what shifts it. So you still have that element of the unexpected, the, the person doing the unexpected crazy act actually being the balance sh- shift for the negotiations. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about that quote for me really was kind of wondering who learned from who. Because we know that Stark had been using the my side, your side, crazy, you know, Stark thing for a while before John showed up. But then really we see John kind of start to pick up on that versus his usual, let me talk, you know, myself out of any situation. We start seeing John start doing the crazy man, you know, you don't want to mess with me. You don't know what I'm going to do next really after he meets Stark. So that was kind of interesting for me to kind of be like, ooh, was Stark the original? And then John was just like, hey, this is a neat way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Stark has used had used that defense against Scorpius and his constant, constant barrage in the Aurora chair. And it is an interesting question whether that's John picking it up on that, even if it's subconsciously, you know? So Stark is the one here that actually comes up with the plan plan. He's the one that later on is kind of explaining to everybody how the plan works, which is kind of hilarious because he keeps being like, everybody will just count silently in their heads and it will all work. And everybody else is like, And if you don't count silently in your heads, then we're all going to die. And yeah, it's... You remember how his plan was super overcomplicated in part one? Well, it's even more super overcomplicated here in part three, where everybody has a role and they're supposed to be counting silently and it's supposed to be like this well-oiled machine kind of thing. And like, yeah, if you had a crew that was actually a heist crew, like say the leverage crew, doing something on a silent count, sure, they could do it. But you have this completely disparate, non-trusting group of mercenaries who, let's be honest, not all of them are that bright. And actually, really, I'm just thinking about Rolf and the Zinish and pirates at this point. But, you know, they're not they're not going to get it done. Like, even if they understood the plan, they wouldn't be able to execute it. And it's very clear that all of them are super frustrated and they think Stark is actually crazy and they think this plan is stupid and they're all going to die. Well, I mean, legit, Stark (laughs) is totally nuts. (laughs) True. Like, they're not wrong there. And yeah, so what ends up happening is they end up going down to the planet, and of course, they are immediately frelled. And before they actually get down to the planet, the Zenitian pirates and Turak, which thank you to our Twitter friend for helping us with that name, they go to Dargo and they say, so you understand that this plan is really frelled, right? And he's like, yeah, it's not just like really frelled, it's definitely frelled. So he's like, here's a better plan. We're just going to shoot open the doors and then just kill everybody. And I love and I love also that Aaron walks in at that point, too. And she's like, yeah, that's totally the plan. We're just going to do a frontal assault and just go in (laughs) guns blazing. And they have like super high power weaponry with them. And one note before we end up going down to the planet with our with our assault team, we actually have someone else arrive. We have Crace and Talon arrive at the beginning of this episode. And Talon has come in response to Moya's distress call because when she got burned, she sent out a distress call. And he comes and they're hooking him up to uh, give her nutrients and basically help a blood transfusion, if you want to think of it that way, trying to help heal her from these horrific scarring she has from the burning. And Aaron actually asks Crace for his and Talon's help. And I'm going to play that conversation here because we get a really nice reversal going on. Is there some reason you wish us to stay? We are planning to attack the Shadow Depository on the planet below us. And you want Talon to help? Scorpius is in the Depository. Tempting. I thought that you didn't want to use Talon for violence. You all said that from the beginning. Yes, but this is different. How? Is this violence more acceptable because it's for you? No, it's because Scorpius has captured Crichton and he's going to kill him if we don't get down there. (laughs) There's always a reason for violence, Aaron. 
Thousands of people die for the most virtuous causes. Oh, you don't have to lecture me, Chris. I believe I do. You've lectured me countless times. How long has Scorpius held Crichton? Four arms. Then I recommend you bring down a basket without any holes so the Crichton's liquid remains are not lost. He's already dead, Aaron. I really love that Crace throws back in her face, like, oh, so because you want to use Talon for violence, that makes it okay. You know? Mm. And whereas at the beginning of the season, like, back at episode one, uh, Mind the Baby, that was the main argument in the custody disagreement over Talon between Crace and Aaron, is like, you're taking a baby that is bred for warfare. You can't use him to hurt people. They didn't know what Crace was going to do with him, and they didn't trust him not to use him for violent things. And so Crace bringing it back here at the end of the season is a really, really nice tie-in for that, which mm-hmm. I really like a lot. Well, and also, I mean, it ties back to so many other things that have happened this season, like The Ugly Truth and the episode with the the birds from the dark crystal out of their minds out of their minds i feel like in all of these episodes there's been kind of this underlying question of crace and violence and talon and i think that i really do enjoy talon or i really do enjoy crace calling aaron on this for a couple of reasons i like it because this is a very very common thing that happens in tv shows it is very common that it's like, well, it's not okay if you do it, but if I do it, it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. like stealing is bad unless the leverage crew does it. You know? <laughs> or like messing with people's mind is bad unless Michael Weston does it. Mm-hmm. You know, like that sort of thing where it's like if it's the character that, you know, you like, you're like, no, that's okay. And I don't know. I think that the other thing that's interesting here is it, this actually really does make me think that Crace is looking out for Talon's best interests because Crace has kind of, ever since the ugly truth, he's been trying to have this much harder line about Talon not performing violence. Mm-hmm. So to have him here being requested by Aaron, who obviously is somebody that he has unresolved feelings for and that Talon also has unresolved feelings for, to have Aaron coming and asking and him still being able to say, I don't think this is a good idea. We're not going to do it. Yeah. It really felt, if it, it made me feel more for Crace. Oh, yeah, totally. I really love Crace's response here, in part because of that, because he he doesn't, he's recognizing the irony and not falling for the trap, you know? Mm-hmm. Because there's also the question of how much is under of the violence is under Crace's control and how much is under Talon's control. It mm-hmm. kind of kind of comes up in the ugly truth when it turns out no one was responsible for shooting the Plakovian ship it was just Talon shooting the Plakovian ship you know he did it on his own and so I think you start to see how you know the autonomy that Talon is exhibiting and how much control does Crace have over it and how does Crace act as a guardian for Mm -hmm. Talon who is still very young you know he's a cycle old at this point basically yeah and and I think that nowhere is that more visible than in this episode when you are seeing several scenes of Talon and Moya next to each other. And Talon is still very, very small compared mm-hmm. to Moya. And actually later on, I mean, just I, I do want to talk about the development of Talon's firepower because I think that it bears looking at that as a child, he already has, is this dangerous? Yeah. As an infant, essentially, he's already this dangerous. The other thing I really liked about Crace and Talon here is that they responded to Moya's need for help, mm-hmm. which kind of goes back to our whole conversation about custody issues and whether or not it is a custody issue or whether or not Talon is allowed to choose how much time he spends with his family and with his captain. Yeah. I think we've seen a thawing of a lot of the distrust and the animosity between them throughout the course of this season between Talon and Crace and the Moyas and Moya and her crew. Again, I think with the, the budding autonomy of Talon, he gets more of a say of how much he gets to go to help Moya or whatnot. You know, distance can often improve your relationship with your parents. <laughs> I don't know if you had that experience when you were in college, but I did. 
And I think because they have encountered them a couple times throughout the season, you know, that that relationship has shifted. And so it doesn't seem like such a leap as it might have at the beginning of the season after Mind the Baby for Crace to be, okay, yeah, we can go visit Moya. That's no big deal. She's in trouble. We'll help him out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for certain. But Aaron doesn't just stop there because Aaron really, really wants to rescue John. And I think that this episode has in some ways really crystallized Aaron's own feelings for John because we know how she feels and we're pretty sure that she knows how she feels. But this episode, I think, lets her tell kind of tell everybody how she feels through the only way she knows how, which is extreme violence. <laughs> so yes. Aaron, Aaron actually ends up going to Crace again and this time... She isn't just asking, she's offering. She's begging, yeah. I'm sorry, Erin, you're wasting your time if you came here to beg. Not begging. Choose your own word. Look, Grace, we're all going to die if you don't help us. Will other lives be lost in this attack? You can have anything you want, anything. Erin Sulem, are you offering yourself? Crichton. If he's alive, must mean a great deal to you. And take what you want and I won't stop you. So I have a question there. Do you think Aaron is offering to let Grace have sex with her? I think that offer is on the table even though she doesn't acknowledge whether or not it is or not. Like, she stays silent and stony and unreadable during it, so it's like, interpret as you will. But I think I think there's two things that she's offering. I think, one, that yes, if Grace did want to have sex with her, she would not necessarily object. But the real offer, I think, is her going with them. Because that was the original deal, right? Back at the beginning mm-hmm. of the season, Mind the Baby was like, Aaron would go with Grace and Talon, and have adventures with him and abandon um, Moya and her crew. And at that, at the beginning of the season, Crace rejects it. But now we're starting to get the sense that through some things that Crace tells Talon later on in this episode, and also in the next episode, is that there's something else that they want from Aaron or for Aaron. And so I think we're starting to see that Crace sees her as the one of Moya's crew that he really still respects in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways and she is from a similar background she's peacekeeper you know if he's lonely on talon which could also be a thing because he is one man aboard one ship and no one else is aboard having either companionship or talon wanting her presence or him wanting her presence for sex or other things i don't know Hmm. so i think it's on the table but i don't necessarily know how much either one of them would follow through with it if that makes sense like yeah would she balk at it if that was actually demanded of her i don't know Yeah, because I don't know, as a viewer, it was kind of like, whoa, that's intense, because she's not even offering to, like, participate willingly. She's literally just kind of like, I'm not going to stop you if you want to take anything. And I'm like, okay. The subtext is definitely a sexual offer, like, in our cultural reading of it. Yeah. So, and the way he answers, are you offering yourself? I mean, that very clearly seems to me to be a sexual connotation there yeah for certain I don't know it was definitely interesting so the other thing I want kind of wanted to pick out of that clip was I think that this really does just show again how far Aaron is willing to go to save John yeah yeah she is like she's come back to Grace and he calls it begging she says it's not begging but I think that's her pride she's she's come to beg for his help essentially mm-hmm. and trade Anything she has, including herself, potentially, for his help. And he still says no. Mm -hmm. So that sets the stage for going down to the planet. And the one other relationship I want to mention right here, because it comes up before they go down, is Dargo's and Jothi's relationship. So they've just been reunited. And there's some assumptions and expectations, and they don't know how to talk to each other, basically. So I'm going to play the first conversation that we see between the two of them. And it just shows how how difficult it is, even if you love somebody, to talk to them. I'm... uh, I'm sorry that we haven't spoken. Don't be sorry. 
I know what to say either. Who did this to you? Who mutilated you? You did. In a way, you've done everything that ever happened to me. Chelsea. Son. I had to send you away. After your uncle accused me of killing your mother. I'm not angry with you. But what's going on in the ship? You don't expect me to help you save Crichton, do you? I thought you would want to. I... Listen! I'm interested in saving myself. For ten cycles, I've been running, trying to survive. I realize that. I want to know everything that has happened to you in your No, life. no, you don't want to know. Believe me, you don't want to know. I have done things, many things I am not proud of to survive. I, I don't want to shame you, but I am not going back to that planet. I only just got my freedom back. I'm not going to risk losing it again. So it's kind of super awkward between the two of them. But what I love about it is that, that Jothi still acknowledges that, yeah, this is hard. Even though he says his disfigurement, his tankas, the, the long tentacle dreadlocky things that are actually flesh on his head, have been, a couple of them have been cut off. And he says, it's because of you. Because everything in my life that's happened to me has been because of you. And there's this kind of dichotomy between between Jothi's, like, he says things that are really hurtful because they're true, because he's had a very tough life to Dargo about it. And he, he says, like, I don't blame you. But at the same time, he's still saying it in this way that's, I don't know how much of that is, like, trying to communicate for understanding or trying how much is, like, do I blame you, but I kind of don't blame you, or I don't want to tell you that I blame you, but I do, you know? What kind of yeah. churning emotions are under the skin there? Yeah, and I think the other thing to kind of, realizes that a lot of times people do have mixed emotions about people like it is possible to hold two emotions about somebody in your heart so it is possible on the one hand for Jothi to feel his entire life like my dad is going to come save me and at the same time to have in his heart if I wasn't a half breed I wouldn't be enslaved my mother wouldn't have been killed I wouldn't be on the run all the time. So I think that Jothy kind of here is trying to like balance these two issues that he has, which is that on the one hand, even though last episode we were both kind of like, it doesn't occur to Scorpius that, you know, somebody might not hate part of themselves. But at the same time, it kind of feels like Jothy almost does, but he just doesn't know how to verbalize that. And he doesn't really know which part of himself he hates. So we kind of just do have Jothy of these both minds about himself do you know mm -hmm. what I mean where on the one hand he feels like it's Dargo's fault but on the other hand he still loves Dargo yeah and he understands that Dargo was not the controlling factor for a lot of these things like the intellectual versus the emotional response with mm -hmm. some of that and I guess the other thing I really appreciate about this so in this conversation, we hear Dargo assuming that Jothi wants to come help rescue John because John traded his life for Jothi. So it's like gratitude, right? You owe this man your life. And Jothi's like, oh, hells no. I just got my freedom. I'm not going to go fighting for anybody and losing that freedom again. And I've done terrible things. I'm not proud of it. And he still doesn't want to bring shame to Dargo. Like, that's still important to him. Dargo's good regard still matters. And I didn't pull this clip, but there's a conversation that happens right before they go down to the planet where you can see both Dargo and Jothi trying so hard to build a bridge between them, where in this conversation, the second conversation, Jothi says, I'll go down and fight to help him. Like, you're right, I do owe him. I want to be a part of this. I'm not a coward. And Dargo saying, no, it's not your fight. Like, the points you made earlier were right. Like, you just got your freedom. I don't want you to lose it again either. And I just love that reversal between the two of them because even though Jothi has all these mixed feelings, and I love the way you put that of holding two strong emotions that are contra contradictory in your heart, and Dargo wanting everything to be, like, lined up and perfect because the sun is back now, like... All he could think about was getting to Jothi again. He didn't think about the relationship afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I love that the two of them are, are reaching to try and bridge that, even if they're doing it imperfectly. 
Yeah, I love that idea of kind of them kind of reaching for understanding with each other to the point where they actually end up swapping positions. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. know, and Dar- like Dargo, even when they get down to the planet, he's like telling everybody what they're going to do. And he's like, and Jothi, you'll stay on the pod with Rigel. And Jothi's like, what? I came here <laughs> to like help. And Dargo's like, no, I want you safe. And yeah. I'm like, so anyway, I and I think that and maybe that's kind of a Luxon thing because I mm-hmm. think it was more important to Dargo that Jothi wanted to participate in the battle rather than that Jothi actually yeah. does participate in the battle. And the other thing I, I wanted to kind of pull apart here is just that we often think of Dargo as one of the younger characters on the show because compared to Rigel and Zan, he is pretty young. And compared to Pilot and Moya, obviously... And also his behavior tends to be kind of from the gut. You know, he tends to just act before thinking and speak before thinking a lot of times. But kind of seeing him around his son, it kind of makes you realize a couple of things. It makes you realize that Dargo really didn't have any time to be a parent. Yeah. Because his wife, you know, was killed when Jothi was so young. And also just, I, I don't know, it just kind of brought out again for me that he he never really learned how to be a dad and now he's trying to be a dad again and he doesn't quite know how it works still. Yeah. And the other complicating factor is Jothi was such a young child that you're a different parent to young children than you are to teenagers or young adults, mm-hmm. you know? And so he's, he's gotten, Jothi is his own person the way he wasn't the same kind of person as a child. And I think that's complicating matters as well for the two of them. Yeah. So, Everybody is down on the planet. <laughs> yep. So they, they go in. Rorf and Bakesh, they are the advance guard because Rorf is supposed to locate John because he's a blood tracker. And they find out, of course, once they're down there, that the female of the species is the one who's actually good at blood tracking, not the male. <laughs> so that's kind of unfortunate. And Bakesh, I just got to say, Bakesh is like the best one-liners <laughs> He has so many good one-liners this episode. It really does. Then Aaron is piloting the pod, and then she gives control over to Rigel, which I just love. Rigel becomes the wheel man, and it's great. I just I love Rigel having jobs. And he has, <laughs> I didn't mention this earlier, but he has Durka's head is now on a stick, and he's carrying it around with him <laughs> everywhere, and it is glorious. <laughs> oh my gosh. The best part is when they're all listening to Stark's plan earlier, and the the pirate or it's not the pirates uh somebody else is like what is that and he's like it's the head of one of my enemies it makes me feel better that he doesn't talk back <laughs> it's amazing speaking it of Bakesh one-liners during that same conversation Bakesh is like I am a holy I am a I'm a holy warrior of Taru which viewers you will remember Taru is a peaceful religion It is a religion based on not killing people. Yes. And also, he killed the priests before he converted. So, yeah, Bakesh is like my favorite of the mercenaries. He's hilarious. He must have had, the actor must have had so much fun with that. The writers, too. So, we have our, we have Rigel Landing. And then Zan, Stark, and Turok, the Xiang, they are going after the generator to cut out the power. And meanwhile, Aaron and Dargo are joining Bakesh in the main hall to take out the peacekeeper contingent that is there that Scorpius has on from his marauder who are defending it and they are storming the castle as it were and I think by this point Rorf has been captured is that right yeah Rorf was captured pretty early on yeah so we'll talk about him a little bit later when we jump back to Natira and Scorpius and John basically they tortured him he gave away part of the plan because they tortured him it was really gross and so peacekeepers are defending and they're storming the castle and it's just it's just actiony amazingness and Dargo and Aaron just have really big guns and they just shoot everybody and Bakesh is there with his gauntlet taking out the cameras and it, when the power finally does go it's oh Zan and Turok as you remember Turok had trouble belching his fire he like has the fuel but he can't like get it to come up because he's older and so Zan comes up with this 
this poison to that'll help him help him do that but when they get to the generator room scorpius and his guys get there too and so it's this really tense standoff where xan has a gun at her throat and tarak is the only one free but he's also the one who can explode if he gets shot and it's so sad he commits suicide so that he can blow the generator for them and it's just like oh my heart broke i know it is like one of those moments of why would he do that for people that not only he doesn't know, but he doesn't really like in the first place? Yeah. And then I realized, I think it was a warrior's way of going out with glory. Yeah. You know, it, at least that, that's how it felt to me was a blaze even of glory. These were, hmm? A blaze ah, of glory. A blaze <laughs> <Sorry>. of glory. <laughs> I've been waiting to use that one. But yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's like he's lost his crew because when Aaron found him, he was alone. And and this is his chance to do something really impactful. And everyone hates the peacekeepers, right? Yeah, who doesn't hate the peacekeepers? So the generator is out. There's no power. And then the best thing happens. Erin's <laughs> night vision doesn't work. <laughs> so she's just like following along Dargo, who does have night vision, and Bagesh, who apparently doesn't need night vision. And they're mowing down all these peacekeepers. And then when the lights finally come back up, you know, she's like, oh, I just got it to work, my night vision. And then the lights come up. And Bakesh kind of looks around and he's like, you did pretty well for somebody who can't see. Because there's just like, everybody is dead. <laughs> and there's like 20 peacekeepers or 30 peacekeepers on the floor. And okay, here's my question. And this is probably just movie magic. But how did they not got not get shot while they were storming that hallway? It was a narrow hallway. One mm-hmm. of those 40 pulse fire weapons should have hit them. And there's only three of them against 40. Yeah. I mean, seriously. And they were traveling in like a pack too, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, Aaron, I don't know. Aaron did have Magic. a big gun, but yeah. Hand wave, hand wave. Hand wave, hand wave. Yeah. But by the time they get to the room where John is supposedly being kept, he's not there. And now we shall go back and talk about what's been going on with Scorpius and Natira. Yes. So <laughs> the episode actually opens on John being attached to this giant sphere. It's like his back is arched it's just like a giant globe that you see sometimes that are just like standing around except it's like mm-hmm. metal just obviously not a globe but it has like metal straps and he's just strapped to it upside down and it looks so uncomfortable oh goodness i props to ben browder for doing that because that would have broken my back and so scorpius wants the wormhole information but first he wants to know is it there? Did his neural clone manage to access it in the amount of time? And Natira doesn't know why Scorpius wants John yet, because essentially all he's been saying is that he really, really wants John. And she actually kind of points out to him, she's like, you've never been this fixated on anybody ever. And kind of there is some tension there, because what we know about Natira is that she's out for herself. She's a little bit greedy, but in a smart way. And she's also used to being in charge. And then there's also this weird tension power between her and Scorpius because Scorpius is also a danger to her. Mm -hmm. Like she's not just helping him out of the goodness of her heart. She's helping him because he could rain peacekeeper hell down upon her. Yeah. And so far she has tried to double cross him with the ignorance that were turned out to be the, the money that hurt Moya. They were originally supposed to be her gift to Scorpius. And there's some bad history between the two of them where she owes him. And I think also, you know, she's also a threat because she knows too much, you know? And Mm -hmm. Scorpius doesn't, is not going to stand for loose threads if he senses that his overall plan is going to be hurt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Natira finally finds out, Scorpius kind of accidentally reveals to her why he wants John, which is John's wormhole knowledge. And it's interesting because then the whole rest of the episode is John essentially trying to convince Natira to double cross Scorpius. He's trying to convince her that her best bet is to help John rather than to obey Scorpius. Mm-hmm. And I actually want to play a clip about what Scorpius has to say about the wormhole information because. Watching it, having seen the series a couple times, I just want to point out that this is very consistent with what we learn 
about Scorpius in the future. Flavius Scorpius here wants to visit foreign lands, meet foreign people, and conquer them. You overestimate me, John. I have no desire to dominate the universe, but know this. The wormhole technology in your brain sway the balance of power as we know it. Imagine the ability to move an army in an instant, the power to make hostile planets disappear. Yeah, so so he says he doesn't want it to dominate anybody. He just wants to shift the balance of power. And so that automatically makes you ask the question of who is he shifting the balance of power with, you know? And mm -hmm. from this season, we've kind of seen, we've had the threat of the Scarens be introduced, an oppositional force to the Peacekeepers. We learned that in Look at the Princess trilogy when the ambassador was trying to get Clavor to be the new emperor. And so... There's more going on in the Farscape universe than we know about, basically. And I feel like this is a point that could get very easily lost in this episode because there's so much action adventure going on and it's all about the rescue plan. And this is mm -hmm. this kind of little throwaway. Like this is the almost the, yeah, this is pretty much the extent of the talk about wormholes and why they're important to Scorpius in this episode. Mm -hmm. And it's a motivating force that he wants to have the power to move armies in an instant, destroy planets, and have power that will rival that of the Scarens. And so that opens up this whole question of what's going on in the wider universe and what's the political scene of the wider universe that the show will explore later on. Yeah, yeah, for certain. And also, it's interesting here that John is kind of like, oh, Scorpius wants to conquer and he wants to, you know, control. And then Scorpius is like, I don't want to control. I just want to be able to destroy planets and move armies in an instant. And I'm like, Scorpy, that sounds an awful lot like control, dude. You yeah. Know? Well, and the play on words that John uses is what Lucius Scorpius, which is Roman reference, you know, basically making the analogy that, that Scorpius wants to be like the Roman Empire. Or the mm -hmm. peacekeepers want to be like the Roman Empire. Which you've you've mentioned in the past is like a really good metaphor for the peacekeepers. Yeah, I like that metaphor much better than the Nazi metaphor. The Nazi mm -hmm. metaphor gets thrown around because of the contamination of the species thing that got Aaron kicked out. But mm -hmm. I feel like, especially as the show progresses and you see more about how they interact with other other races, that, yeah, they want to keep the species pure, but they also want to conquer worlds and control them. Like they have a puppet king on... Ha, Puppet King on Hyneria, which is Rigel's old realm. They have mm -hmm. control of Delvia, which is one reason that Xan rebelled and eventually got arrested. And you, we see, like, you know, the Peacekeeper Society reaching out and controlling by proxy all these worlds, much more like the Roman Empire controlled the lands that it, that it lived in across Europe, as opposed to just trying to annihilate other species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Scorpius finally has what he wants, and he actually ends up going into John's head. And in there, they're on a pier in a memory of John's, and we see the two face-to-face. -face. We see the neural clone, and we see Scorpius face-to-face. -face. And then they do something to John where he's paralyzed inside his own mind, which didn't actually seem to result in any paralysis in real life. I didn't quite understand the purpose of it. but I think you can infer that it did, but since John doesn't move throughout this whole thing, he's still strapped to that sphere thing, we actually never see him try to resist it. So mm. it's never like challenged in the real world what the assumption is. Um, I, I could see it as, yes, he was paralyzed, but you know, he was already tied down, so he wasn't going anywhere until Natira <laughs> released him anyway. So he gets Natira on her own, and Backing up just a little bit, Rorf, the blood tracker, was captured, and Natira apparently has a thing for eyeballs that's really gross, and that's how she tortures people. So she, Ugh, she yeah. took out Rorf's eye. We don't have to dwell on it, but she's also talking about taking out one of John's baby blue eyes, and that's also quite disturbing. <laughs> yeah. She goes on like a monologue about <laughs> his blue eyes. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Okay, let's stop touching the eyes now. So Scorpius, at this point, has left the room because he is now leading the attack against or organizing forces to to resist against Aaron and Dargo's attack on the bank. And so Natira is alone with John and he says, you better get me free and you can ask the neural clone how Scorpius is going to kill you because the neural clone knows. And so she eventually does. She goes in, she uses the device to go into his head as well. And the neural clone, yeah, tells her, yeah, Scorpius is probably going to kill you in weird, creepy, possessive language that I don't know. I don't quite entirely get that whole exchange 
but it is what it is, mm-hmm. I suppose. And so she eventually does agree to rescue John. Yeah. And it is kind of out of self-preservation. This is another good reference of John Crichton being able to talk himself out of any situation. Uh, because he here he's been trying the whole episode to get her, come inside my head. You'll be able to see how Scorpius is going to kill you. And she finally does. And yeah, Scorpius is going to kill her. Which is interesting because I'm like, I'm sure if... You know, they went inside her head. She would also have plans to kill Scorpius. <laughs> so maybe yeah. it's just that John has convinced her of the immediacy of it. That kind of is what frightens her. Yeah. And also she's outnumbered, right? Because mm-hmm. the command carrier has become within range. They've sent more troops. And she's very much wanting to avoid the peacekeepers coming in and raining holy hell down upon her shadow depository. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's going to happen anyway, because Moya has, as a part of the distraction, come down and done a a low-flying maneuver and basically blowing out all the windows. We have the attack going on in the hallways. And so she knows her days are numbered now. Like, her business is already starting to crumble to pieces. The peacekeepers are on her. So... That's why she has hightailed it out with Rorf and Crichton. And so when Aaron and Dargo show up, the room is empty. And Mm -hmm. so now we get to the convergence of Aaron and Dargo finding John in the hallways. Poor Rorf gets shot trying to save John. Mm -hmm. Because you have the peacekeepers on one side of this hallway with Scorpius. You have the three of them at the other end. And then you have Aaron and Dargo and Bakesh arriving. Mm-hmm. Kind of as the cavalry, but they're grossly outnumbered by the peacekeepers at this point, and they're boxed in on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is really kind of like a coming together of all these different plot lines. And on a really fundamental level, it feels very satisfying because this whole episode has felt so fractured to me. Like, as a viewer, it just feels really fractured because there's so much stuff going on that kind of when everything comes together, it's this moment of unity. Because they meet up in the hallway and there's this battle going on and they're showing down with Scorpius. And then we cut to John and John is kind of sitting in the corner. And I want to play the clip of how he is reacting to this final big battle with Scorpius. Crichton, you want the chip gold? All right, follow me. Follow you where? Go down to the depository, hide in a container that should protect us from Talon's attack. Should. Have you got a better idea? Well. I'm, uh, I'm gonna go to Scorpius. Really, Mark. Don't go! Carry him! So Aaron cold clocks John because he's talking about going to Scorpius. Yeah. And Targo carries him into the canister. Yeah. Ever since John and Scorpius faced off in that hallway, they'd be getting these like background audio of Scorpius in his head talking to John and saying, Oh, you want to go with Scorpius? Oh, you don't want to hurt Scorpius. And that is what John is going through. And he is otherwise completely oblivious to this firefight going on next to him. And it's it's just kind of sad and pathetic. And it's like that that small child in the corner phenomena of you sometimes see where they're just like to protect themselves, blocking everything else out. But he is so inwardly focused on this internal battle with the Scorpius in his head that he's like not even phased by what's going on around him. And he, and when he says, I'm going to go, he's just like this really small voice. And Aaron's mm-hmm. like, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. not at all. You're going to come with us. So Chris has shown up mm-hmm. and back to the rescue but I want to talk about Christ coming back because later we find out that it wasn't actually Christ that came back it was Talon that made the decision to come back because the pirates the Venetian pirates have double crossed them and they released the flax which trapped every which trapped Moya and um, Rigel Rigel so Talon comes back to protect Moya and he blows up the Venetian ship and this is kind of when I began to question I I did begin to wonder is Crace's aversion to using Talon for violence, is it because he honestly does think that Talon is getting too violent and he kind of sees the danger in that? Or is it because controlling Talon's violence is a way of having control? Like he feels like if he lets Talon do what he wants, then 
he's losing control over Talon? That is a fascinating question. I had not thought to put it that way before. My read on it was that it's more of him being worried about Talon's violence in and of itself becoming too violent. And I think that's an interpretation that's based on what we learned in season three. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say much more about that at the moment. But that's a really interesting way to to phrase it. Is it is it Crace's worrying about control? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I kind of go back and forth because I I want to feel like it's Crace just actually being worried about, you know, how violent Talon is getting. Mm-hmm. But then I also feel like maybe then we're underestimating Crace because this is a guy that literally like kidnapped a baby, yeah. a murder baby for his own ends. <laughs> And like, I don't know. So I kind of go back and forth on it. I I think I'm going to choose to just go with the craze is actually just becoming a better guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Idea. Yeah. And also, well, if you think about it this way, too, they've been each other's basically sole companions for a while. And so and they have like a direct neural brain link between them Mm -hmm. with the with the hand of friendship. And that's kind of a dumb name for the thing. But whatever. And so I can see his feelings for Talon having developed very strongly. And so it would have been out of concern for Talon and his destruction and what that could mean. Because Talon is very young. He doesn't necessarily think through the consequences of his actions. Where if you have Crace, who is a captain, who had to think through the consequences of actions, who went through this horrendous year of kind of losing control of himself. And because of that, you could see the argument for the other side where it is a control thing. But also just a maturity thing, too. Mm-hmm. Even people who know they are doing wrong things. Actually, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say here. I'm, I even can't. people, yeah, like even like even bad people can care about something larger yeah. than themselves. Yeah, but not just that. They can also see the consequences of their actions and make a decision in their own self-interest whether or not it is a good idea to do that mm. thing or not. Like, is it worth the repercussions? And thinking that far ahead and having experience with those repercussions, I mean, that's a, an experience and maturity thing. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, it makes know. sense. Okay. So, Chris comes back and Aaron is like, lock on to my signal and blow the building up. Yep. And Craze kind of points out, he's like, you know how powerful Talon is. And she's like, yeah, just do it. So they get in the container. And then this is when I want to talk about Talon is getting a little bit powerful. And mm-hmm. I say that as an understatement. Talon destroys this fortress of a building in seconds. With only a couple shots, too. Like, you can hear the audio of the shooting. And it's it's not a lot. It's just like a handful of shots. And then you see these towers come down. And Dargo, John... Aaron and Bakesh are all safely in one of the depository boxes, safe deposit boxes. Rigel had already come and picked up Zan and Stark, so they got out of there. But it's just this massive destruction. And it's, I gotta say, it's kind of awesome to watch. It's just yeah. like so cathartic to see this culmination of this three part episode arc and they take down the shadow depository that has caused them so much grief. And it is mm-hmm. kind of glorious and it's epic action movie adventurous I don't know sci-fi brilliance yeah I mean this does kind of feel like you know taking down the Death Star do you know what I mean this yeah. is like this is like in A New Hope where they take down the Death Star and it's like yeah and you know you're all shaking your fists and you're like ooh super excited right up until the end of the episode yeah and I want to play a quote that kind of shows that this isn't the end of A New Hope this is something entirely different John, I've brought my son, Jathy, to thank you. Crazy. John. John, 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 John. Yeah. John begging for death. He is in his quarters with his chest set 
And he's got Winona right on the t- middle of the chess set. He's got all the pieces scattered around. And he's trying to set up the king, which is the representation of himself, I think, in this case. The last piece he wants standing, and he's trying to make it stand up, and he can't make his hands do it because Scorpius in his head, and you can hear it in the audio, John, 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 is in his brain and controlling him. And he's out of control of his own body at this point for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then Dargo comes in and, oh, it's so heartbreaking. The expression on John's face, his eyes are bloodshot. It looks like he's been crying. And Dargo just like a little stunned, but still wanting to help him. And he takes John's face in his hands and it's so touching and so caring. And John's just like, kill me. And it kills mm-hmm. me because my heart's breaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's so well acted. And I like the metaphor of John as kind of the king that's been knocked down. Because the other part of that metaphor then is you're looking at all the other pieces and it's just like all of his defenses are gone. Like Mm -hmm. everything else is gone and he can't fix himself. But more than that, I think that if we kind of take the metaphor a little bit further, it's kind of a hint at what's coming in in Daimi Dichotomy. Because everybody else is down and that means that none of his friends can save him from this there's nobody else that can help him from this he's alone and he can't save himself yeah heartbreaking is what it is yeah super heartbreaking on the plus side as rigel points out a little bit earlier at the tag they are rich now and everyone else is super depressed because they all know that the money is not going to save Moya. Or John. Or John and Moya are in really bad shape and it's difficult. Yeah, it's hard. So even though it is a not a to be continued, it feels very much like a to be continued. Yep. But I guess they didn't want to do a part four. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are now finally leaving the Shadow Depository planet. They're leaving the location, and that leaves mm-hmm. means that they're leaving this episode arc. So what did you think? Oh, uh, I, I like this episode. I like this episode a lot. I think I'd probably give it like a 4 or 4.5. Yeah, I'm in that range too. It doesn't quite blow me away as much as some of the ones we've rated as 5s, but yeah, this one's definitely a solid 4. And I just love the grand scale of it. It really feels like a movie action sequence. And I just, I'm, so, I'm a sucker for that. And the culmination mm-hmm. of all the character story arcs is, it works pretty well with it. I do think it is a little bit, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And that can sometimes be a little hard, but it's a good episode. Yeah, I think that, yeah, the only thing for me is, like I said, it did feel very scattered just because they had so many different kind of plots that they were trying to pull together. I think, uh, no spoilers, I think Daimi Dichotomy does something similar, but just better. So on that note, next week we will be doing Daimi Dichotomy. Gear up, peeps. We are at the end of season two. The season finale. If you'd like to chat with us, you can find us at Farscape Friday Podcast. We are at Farscape Friday on Twitter. We are at Farscape Friday Podcast at Gmail, Tumblr, and Dreamwidth. And also hit us up. We're doing a season two wrap episode in a couple of weeks. So if you could maybe email us thoughts or audio clips or voice memos, whatever you're interested in talking about by March 10th, we would appreciate it. All right. Um, Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.